Amen. Thank you, Donna, for that reading of God's Word. And so we come to the book of Acts. It is an amazing book, as Donna mentioned. Uh, Her favorite book, one of my favorites, certainly, and certainly one that is exciting. It's exciting. We've been in the book of Mark since the beginning of January, where we've learned about the story of the Savior. And you could say that now, for the next several weeks, we're going to be in Acts looking about the story of the church. We see who Jesus is now, and now that changes who we are. And now what does the church do from now on? The story of the church, or another way you could say it, is God is on the move. And that's kind of a a subtitle that I'm going to use for this sermon series is God is on the move. And that may ring some bells to some readers. If you grew up reading C.S. Lewis in any of his uh, Chronicles of Narnia books, you'll recognize the phrase God is on the move. And on the front of the bulletin today, I put the snippet from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan, the great lion, sacrifices himself for the people, for the children of Narnia. Winter begins to go away, and there begin to be these whispers of rumors that happen, and they say, Aslan is on the move. Let me read the longer part here. Aslan is on the move, who is very clearly a Christ-like figure in these stories. Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. And this is what it says afterward. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has happened uh, happened sometime to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand in the dream, but but in the dream it feels as as if it has some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing that you could get back into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. What are you feeling about the resurrection of Jesus? It's been a month. April the 4th was Easter Sunday. Today is May the 9th. This upcoming Thursday will be Ascension Sunday, which is 40 days after Easter, which this story tells us about in Acts chapter 1, which is 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus ascends back up into heaven. What are you feeling on this morning, on this beautiful Mother's Day morning in New England? What are you supposed to feel? What are you supposed to feel? And so today we're going to be starting in Acts. And the first verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it's Luke who's writing to this man Theophilus, which there's a debate about who this man is, a lot of different opinions. It doesn't really matter for the sake of our series. But the point is Luke has written some things in his first book, which is the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in that first book. Which sets up the presupposition that the second book, the book of Acts, 
is what Jesus is going to continue to do and continue to act through his church. And so that's the point of this whole series, is looking at what the church continues to do because of Jesus and what Jesus does through us. And so how does Jesus do his work today? We don't see Jesus in the flesh, just like most of the people in the book of Acts do not see Jesus in the flesh any longer. So how does Jesus operate? How does he act now? Through two chosen, loving, anointed means. Number one, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And number two, the church. Those are his two chosen means by which to act in the world in the book of Acts and today. So let's just give a brief intro to the Holy Spirit first, because we're mostly going to be spending time today looking at the purpose of the church as empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not going to give a long lecture on the Holy Spirit, his ins and outs and who he is, but I do just want to give some bullet points just so that we're on the same page about understanding who the Holy Spirit is and how he operates. And this is just a couple of my bullet points. First, he's the third person of the Trinity. He's co-equal with the Father and the Son, unified in purpose, unique in action. So they are of one common purpose, but the Holy Spirit has unique actions that he alone does through the the threeness of the Godhead, unified in purpose. The, The Trinity, the three in one. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it, which I, I catch myself calling the Holy Spirit it sometimes, but he's a person. He is just as much a person and a relational being as Jesus himself. It's not like the force in Star Wars, which sometimes we can convince ourselves, maybe the Holy Spirit's just like the force. You know, may the, may the Holy Spirit be with you, like may the force be with you. no. This is the Holy Spirit as a person. He is a he, a relational being who speaks, who listens, who relates. The Holy Spirit was there at the creation of the world. He was hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1. And he's there at the very end in Revelation 22, inviting us to receive eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. It says the spirit and the bride say, come, come and drink from the water that is given without price. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, John 16. He helps us in our weaknesses and intercedes for us before the Father, Romans 8. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4. When you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit. He blocks plans for the Apostle Paul, Acts 16, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. He opens the eyes of kings, Acts 26. He indwells believers when they believe, Acts chapter 2. He brings unity, Ephesians 4. He bears fruit in the lives of believers, Galatians 3. He distributes gifts to individual believers, all individual believers, 1 Corinthians 12. He rested on certain specific prophets and kings in the Old Testament, like David and Elijah. But he only comes in full when Jesus departs. John 22, or John 20, verse 22, Jesus breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't give the Holy Spirit at that time. He gives the Holy Spirit after he leaves, which will be on Pentecost Sunday, two Sundays from today, which we'll look at Acts chapter 2 together. The Holy Spirit finally empowers the church with purpose. And that's what you see in this famous verse, Acts 1, verse 8. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Why did we leave all these pictures of peoples and nations and banners up? Isn't missions conference over? Didn't we finish that last week? Yes, but no, never. The missions conference is never over. We will eventually take the posters down, but the missions conference is never over because the Spirit of God has empowered his church to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That'll be my point number two in my three points later in the sermon. So I'm going to hit that hard again. We'll come back to it. But Jesus gives power. Jesus gives power. That's what we've been singing about already this morning. And let me just explain this word power for a second. All this is just intro to my three short points in a moment. Power in Acts 1.8 will come upon you through the Holy Spirit. And you'll empower us to be witnesses. What does this power mean? Again, is this like the force in Star Wars? Or is it something different? The word power here is a Greek word, dynamis. Which, take a guess, what does the Greek word dynamis kind of, what, what does it mean? If, you, if you're hearing an English word that maybe sounds like dynamis. Dynamite. When you put dynamite and you light it on fire, it explodes. Dynamis is power that leads to an explosion of great impact. It's a filling, it's a filling of something that then causes a reaction that has to be seen, has to be noticed. Yeah. Correct, yeah. So, so dynamis is a, being a filling that then leads to an impact. And it can be destructive or it can be very helpful. And so the spirit is the indwelling power and the igniting flame of everything the church does. The word's used ten times in the book of Acts. And most of the time it's used to clarify the proclamation of the gospel. So the gospel gets proclaimed in words. And then it's followed by a great miracle or a healing or an act of faith that is the power, the dynamis that God is using his Holy Spirit to validate. And so the church is empowered for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That's the question we're asking today. What is the purpose for which the church has been empowered? We're going to focus on this power idea for the next two Sundays, this week and next week. Today we're going to be looking at purpose Next week, we're going to be looking at a different aspect of how the Holy Spirit empowers the church. But today, it's what is the purpose of being empowered as a church? What is the purpose of the church? This is a big intro sermon. God can only effectively use what he purposefully fills or what he purposefully empowers. God can only effectively use us if we've been filled with his self. And so if the church or an individual Christian is not filled or not empowered, then we're simply like a balloon or a feather. Have you ever tried to throw a feather or a balloon? I would argue that maybe every one of us, no matter how many bench presses we've done this week, can probably throw a balloon about the same distance. Because it doesn't matter how strong we are. If if a balloon is only filled with air... You're only going to be able to throw it a certain distance. Same with a feather. You try to throw it as far as you can, and it just kind of floats and then kind of falls back and dies. That's kind of like the church without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to go very far. We're not really going to go anywhere. 
But if the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, it means we are filled and baptized with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and thus we can be used for exponentially great things. We can be full of weighty glory in biblical language. So what are the three purposes that we're going to look at today? Again, short three points of introduction to the book of Acts. The first point, the church is empowered for the purpose of proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Again, a twofold purpose, proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. That is why the Holy Spirit comes to fill the church. Where do I get this from the book of Acts? Well, right from the very beginning, it says that uh, in verse 2, until the day that Jesus was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, it says that Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You maybe have noticed that we have a, a logo that we've kind of Uh, put together this spring that on the tagline it says first baptist church of salem for christ's kingdom and the flourishing of our city why do we emphasize the capital k kingdom so much the answer is because jesus does jesus spoke and taught during those 40 days after his uh, resurrection he spoke specifically about the kingdom of god He spoke about this before he died on the cross. So again, go way back to January the 4th, my first Sunday here. I I preached on Mark 1. It says in Mark 1, 14, Jesus says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. He came to preach the kingdom. And all throughout the gospels, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. And he talks about a mustard seed. He talks about all these different metaphors of what the kingdom of God is like. But the idea is that the kingdom is at the central. And after his resurrection, we've said, he spoke for 40 days about the kingdom of God, teaching them. And he told them to stay in Jerusalem as he taught them more in verses 4 and 5, to teach them more and more about the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. He had more things to pass on to them after his resurrection. And yet, look at verse 6. Again, it says in verse 3 that he came to speak about the kingdom of God. And then it says, okay, stay in Jerusalem. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then verse 6, the disciples come, and they said, they came together, and then they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Kingdom of God, kingdom of Israel, the disciples were still focused on the kingdom of Israel, the nationalistic component. And Jesus gently, in verse 7, corrects them. He says, it's not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed for his own own authority. And so he's very clearly redirecting them back to this idea that it's not about an easy, quick, temporal, national fix of Israel. This is about an explosion of the real kingdom, the kingdom of God that's going to be around the whole world. Not just for Jewish people, but for the Gentiles, for the nations, for everyone. The kingdom of God is made available to all people. How? Through the Holy Spirit, who will empower his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so again, the proclamation of the kingdom. As we look through the book of Acts uh, in the next several weeks ahead, you're going to see long speeches 
that Peter or Paul or the different disciples give. In fact, uh, if you add them all up, it actually takes up nearly one-third of the entire book of Acts, or speeches. So you thought that I preach long sermons sometimes. The book of Acts preaches a third of the sermons are just long speeches. The whole text is almost speeches and sermons. Three of them are given by Peter. One's given by uh, Stephen, the apostle. And then, number, and then six of them are given by Paul. And there are all different types of speeches that we'll hit on as we progress through the book of Acts. But the point is, is that the gospel is to be proclaimed with words. So yes, the phrase by St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's a, it's a nice pithy saying. It makes sense in a lot of ways and I, I, I'm not against it, but you have to use clear proclamation and using clear words to preach the good news of Jesus, which is, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come again. By grace we are saved by faith in Christ alone, like the song we just sang. This has to be clear, and the church has to be experts at proclaiming and teaching with precise words what the gospel is. So this summer, we're looking into maybe some some different ways of uh, using resources to help us understand how to proclaim the gospel. So there's some resources um, that that we've talked about that we're going to try to help us as a church, either in small groups or in Sunday school. Again, we'll see how COVID unlocks and gives us opportunity to meet, but to teach each other the story of God and understanding how to be gospel fluent. You're fluent in English. Let's be fluent in the gospel as well. And then demonstration. We can't just stand on a, on a street corner in today's age and preach the gospel uh, with loud words. We do have to demonstrate, to show love. John 14 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus says by the Holy Spirit, you'll actually be able to do greater works than he will, because you'll have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, to show with demonstration love and compassion and grace that is totally unique in our world. And that's a great opportunity for us in Salem today to win trust for people by showing them, showing them, demonstrating for them the love of Christ. So that's the first big point, the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, which is beyond just the United States, beyond just Israel, beyond even just our church, but a kingdom that he's building that will have no end. Second point, the church is empowered for the purpose of witnessing everywhere. Verse 8. So again, this is the the central text, maybe in the whole book of Acts, Acts 1-8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why? Because you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll receive dynamous power. What does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to be someone who bears witness? This is, a, this is something that we can, we can connect with well today in our own modern day. Because we still see, we, you can watch Law and Order and see lots of witnesses being called to the stand, right? Being a witness is simply, simply someone who has seen something heard something, felt something. You are now a witness. 
the disciples had the huge blessing of witnessing clearly with their eyes, with their ears, what Jesus had done in his life, death, and resurrection. You and I have the huge blessing of reading the scriptures and being witnesses, but also feeling the witness, feeling the the change that Jesus has brought about through his Holy Spirit. But the word witness actually has another meaning as well, which is a little bit of a a strange turn on the meaning here. The Greek word, again, I'm bringing out Greek words not to, to show you anything fancy, but just because I think this is important. The Greek word for witness actually is the same word for martyr. Martyr. So we hear faithful stories of missionaries who have laid down their lives and become martyrs of the faith. That's actually the truest meaning of the word witness here. You will be, you'll be empowered to be a martyr. And God does call some of us to lay down our physical lives for the sake of the gospel. Even in the modern day, people lay down their lives for Jesus. It's been said, and again, I don't know how you validate this, but it's been said there's been more people killed for the faith in Jesus in the last hundred years than in the previous 1,900 years combined. Isn't that amazing? Maybe not as much in our country, but around the world, as you look at the faces of nations here, many of these places, it's hard to be a Christian, and people lay down their lives for the gospel. That's what it means to be a witness. The simplicity of how God calls us to use his kingdom as a witness is pretty astounding, I think. All it takes is to see, to hear, or to feel. And you're a witness. If you see Jesus and you believe in him, then all of a sudden you are a witness. You are going to be used. And that's all we're asked to do in the really simple sense. And it adds validity and credibility to the grand story of the gospel. I was telling someone this week, another another place in the scriptures, Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ. We are the smell of Jesus. Do you know what it takes to be a smell? Just to be just to, to be with Jesus and you start to smell like him. And then it's very simple, really. If you love Jesus and you desire to be with him, you will be a witness and God will use you and he will empower you. But there's also a profoundness, I think, of what God does as a witness as well. And this is the global aspect. God takes little individual people like you and me and he uses them to declare and spread the gospel everywhere. And again, this is 12 people that God used to within 100 years of Jesus' resurrection. All of a sudden, the gospel was all throughout the Mediterranean Empire. Within 300 years, it was the official religion of Rome. It started with 12 people. And today, it's the world's largest religion. Billions of people. And God uses little individual people to do profound things. So you see the fourfold progression here. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Let me just explain that for you briefly. Jerusalem is where they already were. God calls them to be witnesses right where they live, in their hometown, to the people that they know well, to the people where they speak their common language. He knows that they know their culture. He says, wherever you are right now, in your marketplaces, be a witness. Judea, it's kind of like the New England aspect. So if you're talking about Salem as the Jerusalem, Judea would be like New England. Be witnesses in your common cultural region. So when you go to Boston, when you go to Portland, Maine, when you go to uh, Hartford, Connecticut, when you go to New Hampshire on vacation, be a witness. You know what New Englanders are like. You can understand their language. Share the gospel. Be a witness. Be the aroma of Christ. Samaria. 
Remember a couple weeks ago, Stephanie Clark preached on John 4, talking about Jesus' scandalous witness with the Samaritans, who were the, the enemies of, of Jerusalem, the enemies of Jews. You don't, you don't associate with Samaritans. This means share the gospel with your enemies. Share, your, share the gospel with those who are, who are different than you, who it takes, an extra, it takes an extra bit of intentionality to love and to reach them. So however that applies, share the gospel with that extra step of intentionality. And then certainly the ends of the earth. We've mentioned that in the last month. The last one, the church is empowered, lastly, for the purpose of being a faithful wait waiter, being, a, being waiting faithfully. People who are found faithfully waiting. These are the last three verses, really, of the, of the book here, of the, of the section, verses 9, 10, and 11. And it says, uh, I loved how Donna read this, the, the, kind of the absurdity. Jesus goes into heaven. He was lifted up in verse 9, took out on a cloud out of their sight. And the disciples were kind of caught gazing up at the sky after he disappeared. And then the angel comes in verse 11, and it says, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? What does this mean for us today to wait? Earlier in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says to wait for the Holy Spirit. And again, that gets fulfilled in Pentecost in two weeks when the Holy Spirit rushes on the people. So we look back at that as waiting for the Holy Spirit. For us today, the Holy Spirit comes upon you immediately if you believe in Jesus. The moment you confess Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and validates that confession of faith. So we don't have to wait another 10 days like the disciples do here. But certainly what we do have in common with the disciples is the waiting for his return. The waiting for his second coming. Jesus does promise that he will come again and restore and redeem and ultimately make all things new, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And it says here, he will come again in the same way that you saw him just leave. So we as the church are empowered with the Holy Spirit, not just to go and to be active and to proclaim and to demonstrate the gospel, but also to be a faithful waiter in an anxious frenetic, fast-paced world. Christians should be the best examples of patience in the world today. Why? Because we have everlasting hope. We have everlasting hope. The sign outside our church says, hope found here. And in part, what that means is, we're not anxious, we're not frenetic, we're not in a hurry, because Christ will come again. And until he comes We will do his work and we'll be empowered by his spirit. It doesn't mean to do nothing. He says, why are you looking at heaven? Why are you staring up at the sky? Go, go be witnesses. It's time. Go be the church. It means instead to go and be witnesses, but also to be patient in our afflictions and our sorrows. So Mother's Day is for some of us a painful day because your mothers are no longer here with you. And so even in that sorrow or in that pain, this applies. The hope of faithfully waiting for those days when we get to see our loved ones again, if they are in Christ. The hope and the longing that we will be reunited with our loved ones in heaven. 
a longing for new bodies for those of us that have physical injuries or, or physical um, maladies. Those will be made new in the new heavens, the new earth. And certainly the longing to be with Jesus face to face. The power of faithful waiting is the salve to a frenetic world and to a broken world. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to come back to uh, Narnia again. There's another one of his books called Prince Caspian. And there's a great interaction there of Lucy, the little girl, talking with Aslan, again, the great lion. And she says, Aslan, you look bigger now. And Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. And Lucy says, not because you are older? And Aslan says, I'm not. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. That's what patient, faithful waiting as a Christian is. As you wait patiently, as you're empowered with his Holy Spirit to be a patient waiter, you will find God bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger every year. Though in reality, he's just always been that way. But you will see him stronger and more powerful and more faithful in your life no matter what comes your way. And that's what it means to be empowered as a witness. So as I finish here, um, I want to leave you with Snoopy and Charlie Brown. There's a common phrase today that young people like to use called YOLO. Have you guys heard this? YOLO. It's, it's short for you only live once. YOLO. You only live once. Charlie Brown says to Snoopy, he says, Snoopy, we only live once. And Snoopy says, actually, we only die once. We live every day. May that be the case for us as the church, as we are empowered to be his witnesses, to be a faithful presence of him everywhere we go. So would you join us on the journey to the book of Acts uh, in this summer and fall? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have uh, brought about your kingdom and you have made your people witnesses and you've empowered your church to be your agent of redemption in the world. What a task, what a call, what a joy. I pray you would fill this church with understanding of, of our calling as these weeks go by. May we lean ever more on you, and would you fill us with your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we invite you to stand again as we sing our final song.